Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. It's UPR Spring Member Drive, and so on Access Utah, that means some very special programming, including some best-of segments from some favorite episodes, along with some great new conversations. And today we're going to talk about food, food culture, and folklore. And our guests include Lael Gilbert, one of the hosts of UPR's Bread and Butter feature, and Lynn McNeil, folklorist and associate professor in the USU English Department. We're going to hear some bread and butter segments and a portion of our Access Utah conversation from October with the editors of the book, This is the Plate, Utah Food Traditions. Those editors include Lynn McNeil. Uh, so we bring on uh, first uh, uh, Lael Gilbert. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Good to, good to have you on. We're looking forward to, uh, to talking food. Uh, Lynn McNeil, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. Appreciate you uh, joining us as well. Uh, right off the bat, uh, let me give some exciting news for our listeners. We have a dollar-for-dollar dollar match, a listener pledge from uh, Martha Hamm and Peter Mills, uh, great uh, supporters in Southern Utah, up to $600 this morning, uh, 9 to noon. So kicking this off right now, they've offered to, to uh, match your donation, dollar-for-dollar, dollar, up to $600. Uh, so during Access Utah, TED Radio Hour and Reveal, everything will count for two. And uh, they're issuing a special challenge to all our UPAR listeners in St. George, especially those who know Martha Ham and Peter Mills. Uh, then you can make your pledge, and then you can tell them, hey, I helped you, I helped take your money, and, and they'd be happy with that. So uh, our daily goal is $7,000, so this will help a lot. Uh, so the place to go is our website, upr.org, upr.org, and uh, pledge your support. So let me start with uh, Lael Gilbert. Um, bread and butter, I I mean, I was involved, but I can't remember how that started on UPR. Um, yeah, we've been on for a couple of years now, and it's, it's been just a delight to be able to write and talk and interview um, about local foods and the way people eat, the way they think about food. Um, it's It's been really fun to give that um, kind of community feel to um, this information about things we do every day. We don't always think about food. We just eat it. And it's so fun to just to dive in and to um, really examine the way we eat, the way we make those choices. It's such a basic part of our lives, but uh, for some, I guess it's drudgery, and for others, it's a pure joy. You're you're in the second camp, I believe. <laughs> well, I think it depends on the day, right? I'm I'm a mom, and I have to produce uh, a lot of meals for kids who don't always appreciate it. So I, you know, I I one thing I try and not do in the program is to always glorify food because I I think that's kind of exclusive. I think part of the food experience is the drudgery sometimes and figuring out how, how to deal with that, too. Uh, so, Lynn McNeil, before I bring you on, I want to play a segment from our conversation in October with the, the editors of This is the Plate. Uh, before we do that, maybe set set this up. What is This is the Plate? What, what's it about? So This is the Plate is an edited volume Though that sound that makes it sound boring, it actually looks pretty fun. It's kind of a coffee table style book that just talks about the role that Utah food culture plays in our lives. And it started off initially as maybe an academic reader, and the deeper that we, meaning myself and the other two editors, Carol Edison and Eric Eliason, got into it, 
the more we realized that we really needed to be a little bit more comprehensive. You couldn't really, you know, read a book about Utah food culture and not learn something about fry sauce. So we we ended up reshaping the book so that it now has some very short sections. It has some longer sections. It has some more journalistic sections. It has some academic sections. But overall, it presents, I think, a really fun and compelling overview of what it's like to eat in the state of Utah. And uh, food and culture, of course, uh, I don't know, either almost or entirely inseparable from each other. Uh, so this uh, segment can play, it's about uh, four minutes long. This is near the beginning of our conversation. And so I believe I've asked uh, each of your co-editors, um, you know, about how how they got into this subject, and, and especially Utah food uh, traditions. And, uh, and then we turn to uh, Lynn McNeil here. Lynn McNeil, uh, so you're the outsider among this group, not Mormon, raised in Northern California. Um, uh, tell me the story that you write in the book. Um, you, you had a friend, I think, uh, come and, and, and visit you, and, and you went out to a restaurant. I, I did, and this, is, this was um, in the early 2000s. I was a graduate student here, and I was, you know, I, I am as proud of being a Californian as I am of now being a Utahn. But I say with the, you know, full embracing of both those identities that Californians sometimes can kind of be jerks about, (laughs) you know, kind of thinking their state is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And which is absolutely true. I mean, a lot of, you know, really great food movements have begun in Northern California specifically even. But we, she visited me from here and we went out to dinner and we were looking at the menu and she was looking at all of these great, things, the desserts that were listed and how they were being described. And she looked up at me and she just said, you know what, if we weren't in Utah, I'd order that. And I just nodded along. I didn't even push back. It didn't, I I don't, it, it, I, it pains me to think now about how I didn't defend Utah as a place where, you know, yeah, they can still make good food here. Um, But it was the whole sense of the place was that I'd gone from a place with fine dining and, and, you know, good cuisine to a place without it. And I just assumed that. I took that for granted um, in, in my time here. But the longer I stayed in Utah and the more time I spent here, and especially the more time I saw the regions of the country that were identifying themselves as really just foodie havens, starting to turn to stuff that Utah had just been quietly doing all along, like eating locally and farm-to-table movements and canning and preserving and sort of getting back to roots. And I'm going, hey, wait a minute. I think Utah might actually be ahead of the game in, in what feels like maybe even a more genuine way than some other places are. And so I did a, a true 180 on Utah food cuisine the longer that I spent here. And you say now you scoff appropriately restaurants that don't serve fry sauce and uh, spend your autumns canning fruits and vegetables. <laughs> you've, you've, yeah. you've, you've embraced it. Absolutely. And it's, it's true how, how quickly it happens and, and how this, you know, a place that I would have previously said there was no food culture, suddenly I'm really invested in it. I just sent a care package to some friends who moved away from Utah to Florida, and I put both green jello and fry sauce in it. Because, you know, these are the things that remind you of home when you're away. And 
yeah, I, I feel like I was genuinely transformed in my relationship to food by Utah. I did not grow up in a household that, that cooked. We, we made food. We ate, certainly. Um, but there was never anyone in the family who experimented with food or who gardened or canned or, or you know, really got into the culinary arts. And so I associate any appreciation or, you know, what minor skill level I have with this place more than anywhere else when it comes to food growing and preparing and serving. So that's a, a portion of our conversation by October with the editors of This is the Plate, Utah Food Tradition. So, Lynn McNeil, you you, uh, you say there, you credit, I guess, uh, living in Utah to... Um, uh, to, to getting you into food preparation in a bigger way. Yeah, it's really true. I think one of the things we talk about in the book is that there's no hard, solid line between at-home food preparation and dining out, you know, local restaurants, whether that's franchises and chains or, you know, singular, you know, fine dining establishments or anything like that. All of it really melds together as this sense of local eating, and we see often that people from certain regions, and this is documented in the book in, in some fun ways, will have family recipe cards for local restaurants' food. So Bratton's Clam Chowder um, from Salt Lake City was something that a lot of people have in, you know, their grandmother's handwriting on a recipe card or, you know, written down on the pages of a recipe book. And I feel like it's that blending of food experience where, Sure, some meals are homemade and kind of, you know, stock fare that you make every week. Some meals are homemade and singular and unique or experimental and gourmet. And some meals you get because, you know, you're headed to Arctic Circle and you're going to go on a road trip. And some meals you get because you're going to sit down and, you know, dine at a local establishment and take your time and order from the wine list and all of those things. And all that experience together really shapes that cultural relationship to food. And it's really here in Utah where I feel like I really embrace that full spectrum of the food culture experience. Lily Gilbert, uh, I wonder what you think about the culture aspect of this. But before I jump in uh, generally, I'm curious, uh, those kind of those iconic, which I could imagine, um, you know, someone rolling their eyes at or maybe embracing. I wonder which one uh, you are when I say fry sauce or green jello or uh, or funeral potatoes. Well, you know, it's it's interesting when you talk about those because I have to admit that initially I kind of bristle when people talk about Utah being defined by those things because I think um, growing up in Utah, we just define ourselves as the underdog, right? And, and um Having those categories placed on us, uh, placed on me, I think, is a little bit frustrating because I have experienced the full gamut of um, Utah cuisine. And um, but you know, I know I know that that it defines us culturally, and and I've come to accept it. But I I think that um, the way I hear my foodie friends talking about Utah is sometimes, as Lynn said about what we don't have. You know, we don't have access to the kind of, you know, wines or beers that they want. We don't have the seafood or whatever. But what I love about Utah cuisine is that we take plain ingredients 
and we make them amazing. And I, I think that's something kind of the salt of the earth that is something that we can re- really be proud of, um, taking garden produce and inventing it, changing it, canning it, um, mixing it to make it interesting and special and healthy and long-lasting. Lynn McNeil, what do you think about that, uh, taking those, you know, pl- quote-unquote plain ingredients, making them special? Yeah, I think that that's something that we addressed in the book is that Utah's sort of known for quantity over quality is what the reputation often says because we're looking at situations with big families and trying to store food and, you know, feed a lot of people with it. And so I do think that there's a lot of creativity involved in how that's done. And I, I also think, and this was a real challenge for us, the, the book opens with the official iconic foods of Utah section, and it was hard to pick what goes in there. And of course, the, the whole, I mean, the entire book is full of, I think, things that are identified as Utah foods, but we made a very conscious decision to have the first chapter in the iconic food section be alcohol, because we wanted to break expectations that, that people have. And it turns out there is a, a large and growing larger um, availability of really interesting, you know, creative, small batch alcohol products that are made here and available here and that people kind of get into. And that's definitely a breaking an expectation. I think, of course, you know, to be fair, that chapter is immediately followed by the green jello chapter. So <laughs> it's not too, too unexpected. But, but one of our goals was to sort of say, Utah foods aren't what you think they are. You know, they, they are in parts. I mean, um, uh, our other iconic foods include certainly funeral potatoes and fry sauce, but also pastrami burgers, um, also Dutch oven cooking, also salt and saltwater taffy. Um, and so we, it's, it's interesting if, you know, Utah's pastrami burgers ties into Greek culture in unexpected ways. Um, you know, things like honey, looking at the, the roles that, you know, beekeeping and agriculture play here as well. It's really, it's hard when someone says, okay, tell us what are the iconic foods of a place to come up with a list that you can, you know, that can be of manageable size. But I think it says a lot about what actually happens with food culture in Utah to to see what ended up on that list. Uh, We'll go to break soon, but before we go to break, I want to ask uh, each of you, starting with Layla Gilbert, um, you know, just leaving this part of the conversation behind and just uh, what's got you excited lately? What are you What are you trying out? Well, this is a really interesting time to be cooking and eating um, because of the upheaval. Our our communities have gone through this past year. A lot of change and change in a really foundational way for a lot of people. A lot of people who ate out a lot are not able to eat out a lot. A lot of people who cook at home suddenly had their home schedule turned topsy turvy. And so uh, one thing that I've been doing, and it's been such an interesting experiment, is um, my husband's been cooking most of our meals, um, which for us is not, you know, our, our traditional mode of doing it. And it is interesting to be a passenger on the food train rather than driving it. <laughs> Tell me more about that. That's that, um, I guess it's nice to sit down to a meal that you haven't had to work long hours oh, over. <laughs> yeah, it, it it is very nice, but I don't get to choose what's on my plate. And that's, yeah. that's, you know, that's always been a point of discussion at our home is um, other people saying, you know, what I should cook for dinner. And 
I'm like, well, I'm cooking. I get to decide. But now being, being you know, the uh, not being the cook, I, I sit down and I look at what's on my plate and I, I think about, do I get to have an opinion about this? Do I get to, or do I just eat it and smile and say thank you? Um, and I've chosen the latter because it's nice not, it's nice to have a break and it's nice not to do dishes. Yeah. Not, nice to have peace in the family too, probably. Um, so, uh, yeah. Uh, so, um, Lynn McNeil, I wonder, have, have uh, has food changed at your household during the pandemic? You know, I think what's so interesting, I, I was just thinking about this, you know, listening to that conversation, is that I almost feel as though I have to reinvent my conceptualization of communal eating now. It's like I've forgotten how to do it. I try and envision myself, you know, as more people are becoming vaccinated and the CDC is updating its guidelines about, you know, having people in your home and small gatherings and things. I'm finding that it's almost like I've I've forgotten how to host a dinner party and not just how to cook the food, but what's the what's the social expectation around that? What's the how many courses do you make? How many people can sit at the table? What do we what do we do? It's almost been like Things have been strangely on pause for so long that coming back to things that were just second nature in this is how we do this, this is how we prepare food, this is how we share it with people, it suddenly feels, I think maybe even quite appropriately, a little bit more like the sacred act it is to feed other people and share food with other people. The weight of what it means to, you know, prepare nourishment for people is suddenly really brought home by not having done it for so long. Well, before we go to break here, um, I want to have uh, each of you uh, maybe turn uh, metaphorically to your fellow listeners, and uh, and we'll start with Lael Gilbert. Um, what what we're doing here during the, this week, our spring member drive, is uh, trying to put our best foot forward, um, bringing on great uh, guests like yourselves, and saying, "Hey, this is what we do. Uh, do you appreciate this?" Um, so, Lael Gilbert, why why should people become members of UPR? UPR gives me the opportunity to talk to you, the listeners, about the real nuance that happens locally in our communities at the very basis of our our culture about food. And these stories um, are complex. They're interesting. They are not um, motivated by selling you something or convincing you of something. They're, they're simply stories to be told to make your life a little more rich. And um, that's what UPR does. It's, it's a beautiful thing. And if um, we don't have that, then we lose part of our story in our communities. And I think it's really important that we have these sorts of outlets. Lynn McNeil, why, uh, what's your reasons? Why should uh, folks um, become members of UPR? You know, I think this year, more than any other year, the way that we are all interconnected is so incredibly important. I feel like we're seeing that more than we ever have before. We can't take it for granted, this this sense of a community of Utahns that, that we all share this station, Utah Public Radio, is one of the ways that we get to experience that interconnectedness. We get to hear about local news. We get to hear about, you know, international movements. We get all of this information brought to us locally here in our homes. 
and connecting all of us across that. We get to share these experiences, whether we're talking about food or whether we're talking about current events and politics. It's really this illustration of how we all impact each other. And I feel that supporting that and and dedicating ourselves to that is one of the most important ways that we can make sure we don't lose that sense of community, even when we're all super isolated and and being kept apart by external circumstances like pandemics that that we have no control over. We do have control over where we choose to put our time, our attention, our support, our money. And Utah Public Radio is one of the best places where we can put that effort. Well, we appreciate having you both on to help us, uh, both with interesting conversation and uh, helping uh, appeal to fellow listeners. Uh, just before we go to break, I mention again a very important uh, challenge this morning. It's, it goes until noon or until all of this money uh, is fully maximized. It's a dollar-for-dollar dollar match from Martha Hamm and Peter Mills, up to $600. So up to $600, your money is doubled uh, today. So we hope to take advantage of that. And you can go to our website, upr.org, upr.org, and make your pledge there. You can see all of our thank you gifts there as well, upr.org. Upr.org is the place to go. Uh, so every dollar you pledge today, uh, this morning up until noon or until this is gone, $600 is doubled. That's courtesy of Martha Hamm and Peter Mills. They're giving a special challenge to all UPR listeners, but especially listeners in St. George, and especially if you know Martha and Peter, you can tell them that uh, they helped you to get there. They would appreciate that. Uh, that $600 will really help us get to our daily goal of $7,000. So your pledge right now is the important one, upr.org, upr.org. We'll have more following this break. A few years ago, oboe player James Austin Smith was studying in Germany, where during the winter it was dark and rainy and cold until a little ray of sunshine arrived. My dad sent me an email with a gift. Coming up, a father's gift that keeps on giving on the next Performance Today from APM. This evening at 9 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Here's a sample of what you'll hear on the next Putumayo World Music Hour. It's New Jersey native Melody Gardot with jazz vocals in French and English on Good Night. Good night, close your eyes and just sleep tight. Thursday evenings at 10 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utime. Tom Williams, it's the UPR Spring Member Drive. What that means is we're doing some best of uh, segments from favorite episodes. We're also bringing you some great new conversations. And today we're talking about food, food culture, folklore with Lael Gilbert, one of the hosts of UPR's Bread and Butter feature, and Lynn McNeil, folklorist and associate professor in the USU English Department. And uh, we're hearing some Bread and Butter uh, segments, or we'll hear some Bread and Butter segments. We did hear a portion of our Access Utah conversation in October with the editors of the book, This is the Plate, Utah Food Traditions. So one of those editors is Lynn McNeil. Uh, you can uh, go to our website. We're inviting you, appealing to you to go to our website, upr.org, upr.org, and uh, to make your pledge. Renew your membership to UPR if you're a spring renewal or become a new member of Utah Public Radio in any amount. And whatever that amount is, it's doubled. Uh, today, uh, up until noon or up until $600 is fully realized, and that's from Martha Hamm and Peter Mills. 
a special challenge to all our UPAR listeners, and especially those in St. George. That's uh, the area where uh, Martha Hamm and Peter Mills live, especially if you know those uh, two. So thank you to them. Thank you to you if you've already made your pledge, and I'm thanking you in advance. UPR.org. UPR.org. Uh, by the way, we're making progress toward the challenge, and we have a comment from Rick Sherman in Kanab. He says, uh, especially like Access Utah. Thank you, Tom, and all. So thank you, Rick, for for your uh, membership. Appreciate that. Uh, so I, I believe to uh, start this segment, I'd like to he- hear a bread and butter segment. Uh, this is one that uh, Lael Gilbert suggested. It features, I think in this case, uh, Tanya Gibson. And uh, it's about uh, her and her husband blending their disparate food cultures when they formed a, a new family. Uh, so let's, uh, let's hear this bread and butter segment. Next up, it's Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Tanya Gibson. I'm from southwest New Mexico. My husband is from southeastern Idaho. Geographically, they are not far from one another. Food culture-wise, however, they are worlds apart. I was asked recently what we had to sort and merge by way of food preferences after we were married. Honestly, I didn't think it was a lot. But then I actively started thinking about it and kind of changed my mind. I've mentioned before, and I'll probably mention again, that food in southern New Mexico is a culture all to itself. It's ingrained in the very fabric of who we are, and we are extremely serious about it. In addition, we also don't really get how different our eating habits are until we move out of state, a fact that was glaringly obvious to me in college and over and again in the years since. I will never forget a local restaurant near my college trying to pass off scones with fruit and whipped cream as sopapillas. A tragedy I was gratefully warned about by my sister who preceded me. No amount of longing for a treat from home could twist that food horror to be okay. Sopapillas are not scones for the record. They are a fry bread traditionally served as dessert and loaded with honey in the fried air pocket. But they can also be stuffed with beans and meat and chili for breakfast or lunch. I often joke that I cut my teeth on green chili bean burritos like others did with peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I say joke, but it's probably more true than not. On our first date, I made my now husband enchiladas, but not any enchiladas. New Mexico stacked egg enchiladas, which could be an entire topic all on its own and honestly, probably should be. I can look back now and see the presumption that dish served on my behalf, but it was not something I was cognizant of at the time. My enchiladas tend towards spicy, and I served that spice with nary a thought to Idaho tongue. I don't remember a lot about his reaction. I think it was favorable. But I do know those enchiladas have been folded into the fabric of our family since, which I guess solidifies its favorability years ago. At the beginning of our marriage, I did a lot of the cooking. In the two plus decades since, my husband probably cooks more than I, although the dishes and moods are jockeyed about, evening the task somewhat. But what is absolutely true is that New Mexican flair shows up far more often regardless of who is manning the stove. I'm unsure why that is. It could be that my food culture was more dominant to begin with, or that my early cooking set the tone, or that I've dragged him to my beloved blue-skied home state often enough that I've converted him to all things green chili and spice. But whatever it is, it remains true. This isn't to say that potatoes don't have a strong presence in our kitchen. They do. I have a child who would happily live on them if possible, but casseroles, those didn't make the cut. 
However, when I think of Southeast Idaho, I'm often at a loss beyond the potatoes and the casseroles as to a standout food choice. Maybe that is why my husband's food culture leans from years spent living in England and British and Indian food were the main influences we had to merge. And I will admit that tacos are far more often what's for dinner over curry. Still, though my husband would love if my taste buds cut him a break in that category a little more often. I wonder if this merging of food cultures in partnerships is simply something every new coupling goes through, no matter of origins. Certainly, families, as many cultures, have a shorthand in food their lifelong next-door neighbors won't share exactly. We think of the big, country-differing cultures as being the toughest workaround, but I wonder if that actually wouldn't be easier. I think I might be more willing to tackle food literally foreign to me and my upbringing over letting go of my way of making, say, potato salad. I can imagine a situation where we take our rule for eating in our home, you have to at least try one bite of everything before rejecting it, and applying it to one another's food choices. Would that be the smartest way to forge a blended harmony? I can't remember how or why we've settled where we've settled. New Mexican food at this point is simply food. We have dishes from both sides that are just our side now. I wish I could remember exactly in order to answer the original question posed to me. But maybe this is the hope they were really looking for. There comes a day when rivaling food wars settle, preferences are made, and a new couple becomes an old couple. And at some point, food just becomes a shorthand language where you don't really remember where it started. An entire melting pot full of deliciousness. This is Tanya Gibson for Bread and Butter. So that is a segment from uh, the Bread and Butter series, Tanya Gibson. Uh, so, Lael Gubbard, it's it's you, Jen Ashton, and Tanya Gibson are the are the hosts. That that's right, and I just love Tanya's piece there. She's just poetic in the way she describes um, the food culture in her home, and something I really appreciate about her writing. Um, but I also love that piece because it is uh, just a case study in the psychology of eating in a small group setting. Um, That's something, you know, there's in, actually I was reading in um, Lynn's book that they discuss the symbolic weight of procuring, preparing, serving, and consuming food. I thought that was just such a beautiful way to put it because um, food is not just calories, right? It's, It's much more than that. It's the decisions we make and it's the way we show love or show control or um, wrestle power or give power um, in the spaces we live. Uh, Lynn McNeil, uh, maybe I, you could oh, expand on that idea. Yeah. yeah, I was ready to jump in there, Tom. Sorry. <laughs> I, I just wanted to say I think one of my favorite, favorite moments in that segment is when she talks about how New Mexican food had just become food in their household. And I love that because I do think, I mean, food is one of the strongest identifiers we have of, you know, insiders and outsiders to cultures. And when do we use a prefix? When do we describe food as Mexican or Japanese or Peruvian? And when do we just say it's food? And what foods from other places have become just food for us? And how does that transition happen? And we do that both positively and negatively. We, I mean, you know, in in many instances of, of, 
you know, maybe intercultural interaction, we use the foods people eat that we don't eat to identify them. Um, and that can be, you know, done in xenophobic and nasty ways as well as, you know, positive and appreciative ways. And that idea that food is so pointedly a marker of who we are, I think really is highlighted by that story, that that food goes from being something that she makes to something that her family makes. It goes from being, you know, identified as New Mexican cuisine to just being this is just the the daily food that we eat. And I do think that that, that over the course of our lives, as our, as our eating evolves and the people that we share food with change and develop, um, it, it makes for just such amazingly, I like the word poetic, Lyle, that you use to say, you know, when we talk about ourselves through food, it just takes on this really, I think, beautiful metaphorical way of describing who we are in ourselves and who we are in relation to the people around us. One, one story that I really love, I heard from a couple um, that I knew when I was quite young, and it's one of the things that actually started me thinking, started to, um, when I started thinking about how food is much more than food, is that this was an old couple. They were probably in their early 80s, and for the past five decades, they had had fish for dinner every Friday night. They'd, um, it was just their tradition. They they cooked up, they fried up mm-hmm. a couple of fillets of fish and um, had them with some rice. And um, they were telling us about this, and and they said that about a month before, the wife expressed to the husband how much she loved him, and she wanted him to know that even though she didn't like fish, it was something that she was happy to serve to him. (laughs) And he replied, honey, I don't like fish either. (laughs) So they had been eating fish together for five decades as an act of love when neither of them liked fish. Um, And I just thought that that was so beautiful and poignant, and it was something that really, really touched me. Wow, that's you know that <laughs> that's is, amazing. That is so true. What one thing that folklore in general, not just foodways, but but all sorts of you know stories and traditions and things are often um, criticized as as being trivial. These are these are not the big you know epic brilliant moments of human expression. These are the mundane, small, common moments. You know why would we study them? And I remember. Um, Barry Tolkien, who used to run the folklore program here at Utah State University, um, once saying that if you find yourself thinking that maybe folklore isn't important, then try marrying someone who decorates for the holidays differently than you do. Um, Try marrying someone who prepares, you know, a particular favorite dish differently than you do, and you will find out fast just how important the trivial elements of folk culture are in our lives. Um, but I think that's a, a great example in the opposite direction. Look how powerful that is, that someone, that two people would eat something that they don't like for the sake, as far as they know, of the other one. That's, that's such, a, such a perfect representation of, of daily small-scale sacrifices that we make in the relationships that matter to us. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Thanks for sharing that story. That's and for years, right? These are this was an older couple you mentioned. Yeah, um, I wonder, uh, Lael Gilbert, uh, Tanya uh, Gibson mentioned in her piece uh, the fact it is a fact that you know when you get married, you're blending two two cultures. You're making a new culture. Um, whoever you marry, right? And so food's a part of that. Uh, I wonder, 
did you have that negotiation with your husband when you got married? Oh boy, did we ever. <laughs> it was it was probably one of the biggest challenges of our first year of marriage. Um, and this is something I actually, while I had Lynn on the phone, I, I was excited to talk to her about, because um, at the beginning of your book, Lynn, you talk about how to be a little more adventurous um, with with your food decisions, because these decisions go so deep into you culturally. It's, it's not just what tastes you prefer or what habits you have. It's, it's about showing who you are and how, where you get your food and how you prepare it, and even, um, you know, what your religious and cultural background is, all go into what you choose to have for dinner. I grew up eating adventurously. Um, we, we would mix it up all the time, which had benefits and drawbacks. The, you know, I, I can eat anything that's put on a plate in front of me, um, my husband is more particular about what he likes to eat, and um, I think we both kind of come towards the middle. The drawback of the way I grew up is that we didn't have really strong t- traditions. We didn't have the shrimp pasta salad at every family dinner on the 4th of July um, like he did, and it, you know, everyone was really upset if it didn't, if not, not, if the salad was had varied a little bit from year to year, <laughs> and so, and for me, you know, it it was just food, and so the, there's strengths and weaknesses on on both sides. I I was curious what Lynn thinks. How you know what are the strengths and weaknesses there of having that tradition um, with food, and is it a benefit to stretch yourself? You know. I I think it is, though I also think that tradition looks different than we expect it to sometimes, if that makes sense. Like sometimes there's a, I I have, you know, students who will occasionally say when we're talking about a big, what we tend to think of as traditional meal, like a Thanksgiving dinner. And I will have students who say, you know, well, my family doesn't have any traditions. We order pizza and, you know, watch the parade on TV and then play football. And it's sort of like, well, that's, that's a tradition too. I mean, the the way that folklorists understand tradition is really a process of innovation within precedent. So it's not about sticking exactly with the past and doing it the same every time. It's about living in sort of symbiosis with the past in a way that works for you in the present. That's really what's at the heart of tradition. So I know in my family growing up, um, there was not a lot of experimentation with food. There was just sort of a, a perfunctoriness. You know, I ate a lot of cereal. <laughs> um, we, uh, my, my enjoyment of food at sort of a higher level was always eating out in, you know, as a child when, when growing up. But for example, my family's um, Christmas Eve dinner has featured since childhood as a standalone side dish, Jolly Green Giant Broccoli and Cheese Sauce, which comes in a little bag that, you know, in the olden days you boiled in a pot in the bag, and now you just stick in the microwave. And we buy nine bags of Jolly Green Giant Broccoli and Cheese Sauce frozen out of the freezer aisle, and we microwave them in turn. It takes like seven minutes per bag, so it's a really long preparation for this dish. And we dump them all in a beautiful family heirloom, you know, serving dish and put it on the table. And since I ha- can remember, 
that's what I've been eating as my sides for Christmas Eve dinner. And there's, it's amazing because there's almost nothing traditional seeming about prepackaged, you know, frozen food. And yet it wouldn't be Christmas Eve for me without that. So that, that oh, yeah. sense of that's, tradition, that's great. I and think is. Yeah. Go ahead. No, please go ahead. That's, that's my point. That's my point about um, not glorifying. Earlier, was when Tom asked, I was that making the point about not glorifying food too much because that, yeah. I mean, that is real as much as, you know, the homemade turkey is, is real. Yep. Yeah, and, and identifying that as just as evocative and meaningful and important and traditional as a full spread of meticulously homemade food, I think is important to our understanding of food as identity. You know, it's ordering a pizza with your family or even not celebrating things with family. Ordering pizza with your friends can be, I mean, there's a huge um, growing tradition of Friendsgiving that people celebrate now as distinct from Thanksgiving. And that, I think, shows that we are ready to be making these innovations in what we understand to be meaningful ways of eating. Yeah, that's oh, that's wonderful, wonderful. Uh, thanks to both of you. Uh, fascinating, fascinating. We, we need to take a break, um, and we'll come back with our last segment. But before we do that, um, just a reminder um, that we are raising money for programming on Utah Public Radio, including Access Utah, including uh, Bread and Butter. Um, and so the way you do that is to go to our website, our secure server there. You can pledge your support, whatever amount, upr.org, upr.org. That's upr.org. You can look at our thank you gifts there as well. And great news is your money will be doubled uh, up until $600, courtesy of Martha Hamm and Peter Mills. So thank you to Martha Hamm and Peter Mills. Uh, they're especially challenging uh, UPR listeners in St. George, and especially those who know Martha and Peter. Of course, they'd be happy with uh, anyone, including you, uh, to uh, to pledge your support, whatever amount, and your money be doubled up to $600, courtesy of Martha Hammond, Peter Mills. So before we go to break, uh, Lynn McNeil, why, again, why why should uh, fellow listeners um, kick in with the pledge to Utah Public Radio? I really feel that the benefit that you get from Utah Public Radio is something that you really don't get from anywhere else. And I feel like, think about how much you pay for your Netflix subscription or Hulu or HBO Max or any of those things where we say it's worth this much a month for me to have this sort of content. And I feel like Utah Public Radio's content, that the not just the, the shows that we get from NPR and from our, our local things, but just that sense of interconnectedness, that sense of acknowledging that I'm part of a local community that is meaningful and that has impact and that I want to make sure grows and sustains, I feel like that's worth way more than any streaming service. So looked at that way, this is content that if you're listening during the pledge drive, man, I really hope you're a sustaining member of this station because this is, for me at least, this is the backdrop to my day. I wake up and UPR goes on. As I fall asleep at night, UPR is still playing. This is one of those things that has sort of an undeniable value for us as a community, and therefore it deserves at least as much consideration as we give some of the other types of content in our lives. Lil Gilbert, uh, same question to you. It appealed to fellow listeners. Why, why, should, why is it important to become a member of UPR? 
Uh, one of the things I most value about UPR, and, and this hour is a perfect illustration is, of that, is that um, these interviews give the listeners access to state and national experts on subject matter um, that where else are you going to get that? Um, you, you can listen in on a conversation with a national expert on, on folklore and food about your community, about what's going on around you immediately. And it's, it's wonderful access, it's clear, it's fair, and it's insightful. And that happens on UPR Daily. The place to go to to give, to become a member or renew your membership is upr.org, upr.org, our website, upr.org. You can see our thank you gifts there. And don't forget, your uh, pledge is uh, doubled uh, today, up to $600, by Martha Hamm and Peter Mills. So thank you to them and thank you to you. Uh, We'll have more following this break. Growing up in a military family, Major Rob Levine was taught to face problems head on. You've got to take care of the issue. Don't run away from something, ever. So when he discovered that the Army was failing to protect kids living on military bases from abuse, he took action. It wasn't right. It wasn't right to our military family members that wanted some semblance of justice. On the next Reveal. Saturday at noon on Utah Public Radio. Marty Walsh will likely be the first union leader to run the Labor Department in half a century. The former Boston mayor would be taking office as millions are still looking for work, and many workers worry about safety on the job. The Labor Secretary is going to be critically important uh, because these issues are going to be front-burner issues. The Labor Department's to-do list, Monday on All Things Considered from NPR News. This afternoon from 3 to 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. I'm Tom Williams, and we're talking food, uh, food traditions, food folklore with uh, Lael Gilbert, who is one of the hosts of our Bread and Butter segment, uh, which, by the way, airs uh, during uh, the Splendid Table at noon on Sundays uh, every week and occasionally here in Access Utah as well. We've heard a segment uh, today on the program. Uh, We're also talking uh, with... Lynn McNeil, who's Associate Professor in the English Department, a USU folklorist uh, here at uh, USU, and uh, editor of the recent uh, book, uh, editor along with a couple of other editors of the book, This is the Plate, Utah Food uh, Traditions. So we just have uh, about uh, six or seven minutes left in the program. Um, so, Leila Gibbard, I want to start again with you on this one. Um, we'd, we'd, uh, you put together a, a wonderful program around Thanksgiving time uh, for us. Uh, went out and got some of your friends and uh, your your you know co-hosts there at Bread and Butter. We talked about Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving food traditions. Very rich vein there, of course. Um, but I wonder about uh, that holidays. Uh, this was occasioned by a conversation I had in the hallway here. A coworker said, uh, you know, around uh, St. Patrick's Day, he said uh, he might have been listening to a Bread and Butter. Anyway, he he said, "Man, I I just." I have a sudden taste for uh, corned beef and cabbage. I'm going to go find some place in town that <laughs> that can give me corned beef and cabbage. I wonder if you can talk about uh, some of these traditions that we kind of all uh, share, but in many different ways. Yeah, um, yeah. With uh, St. Patrick's Day, that's a that's a fun one uh, you, because it is a, a um, holiday from um, a, a different country. So we import these wonderful traditions. 
and interpret them how, you know, we are comfortable interpreting them, which I always think is a really interesting process, what we choose to um, do. Uh, I, I did do a recent bread and butter about uh, green foods, the tradition of eating green foods, which I don't think is Irish, um, but the green pancakes and the green mashed potatoes that we grew up with. And um, then, of course, there is corned beef and cabbage and the soda bread and and I think we have a strong tradition um, in Utah because many people here are uh, big, in, very enthusiastic about genealogy, about their roots, uh, where they came from, of importing a lot of different traditions, um, you know, especially around holidays. Do you, do you make Norwegian cookies at Christmas time? Do you do German pancakes on people's birthdays? Do you uh, cook your southwestern cuisine um, a little hotter, as Tanya does, as um, than typical? I think it's a wonderful way um, to make your world a little bit wider by learning about different cuisines. It's a good starting point, I think. Um, and I think we do have to be careful about cultural appropriation, um, not... But that inevitably happens with food, <laughs> that we, we try and learn about other traditions, but we, we make it our own. And I think we have to acknowledge the sources where it comes from, too. Lynn McNeil, what do you think, um, you know, any of what uh, Lynn said? I'd be interested in your uh, take on cultural appropriation as it comes to food. Yeah, you know, well, one, I definitely grew up eating green pancakes and drinking green milk on uh, St. Patrick's Day. So that's definitely a tradition that I'm familiar with. But, you know, cultural appropriation is one of those concepts that, that can be really hard to pin down. Um, people react differently to the same sort of scenario. And what it really boils down to and what makes it difficult is that a lot of it's about attitude. Um, if someone goes into a situation of cross-cultural engagement um, with an attitude of sort of, you know, arrogant ownership, without open-mindedness toward education, that's generally seen as a bad thing. But if somebody goes into something saying, you know, with an attitude of, I want to learn, I want to be educated um, by someone else, that, I think, changes that dynamic a little bit. So seeking out um, expertise from people from other cultures and who might be able to tell you, yeah, I know they say that's our cuisine, but nobody I know eats that. And taking that at face value, it's sort of like when you want to learn the traditional music of a particular culture, and then you find out that you have a very stereotyped notion of what the music of that culture is, and you sort of need to let people of that culture be the experts, and whether that means change the music or the food you're interested in, or change what, how it is you identify the food and music that you are interested in. Um, it's really one of, one of attitude, I, I think. Um, when it comes to that idea, there are ways to engage the the products of other cultures without, you know, risking that sort of insensitivity or that arrogance that, that cultural appropriation is often speaking to. Well, the hour has flown by. We're near the end of the hour, and we'll just have time enough for a final appeal to fellow listeners. Lael Gilbert, what, uh, what would you say finally this hour to, to your fellow listeners? Well, UPR is an invaluable resource um, for our entire state. This, this is the voice of rural Utah in many places. 
and it deserves to be supported. So please chip in. If, you, if you're listening, you are part of us. Please um, call up or visit the website and um, show your support. And uh, Lynn McNeil, your, your final appeal this hour. Yes, you know, I remain amazed that there is one single resource that I can access online, that I can access over FM radio, that is going to give me everything from international news from the BBC all the way down to a discussion with my, you know, own colleagues and and people here in my community about the things that matter on the ground to us here. Um, And I know that that's true for Utahns across the state, that there's that amazing blend of worldwide significance in the content that they get on UPR and just real close-to-home immediate relevance of the stuff that they're getting from UPR. So I hope that everyone listening finds that valuable enough to support and sustain. And here's how you do that. A very simple process. Go to our website, upr.org, upr.org. You uh, see right there on the front page uh, the, 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 the pledge button. Uh, make your pledge in whatever amount, and up to $600, that pledge, uh, until this is gone, will be doubled today. This is a very generous uh, listener challenge from Martha Hammond, Peter Mills. They've offered to match dollar for dollar all pledges made uh, this morning up to $600. So uh, make your pledge whatever amount, and you can feel good that that's doubled today, courtesy of Martha Hammond, Peter Mills. And there are especially challenges all of our UPR listeners in St. George, and especially those who know Martha and uh, Peter. And so we we thank them very much, and thank you very much, upr.org, upr.org. Well, uh, we, we thank uh, Leo Gilbert very much for coming on uh, today. Appreciate that, and appreciate your bread and butter segments. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Lynn McNeil, thanks for uh, coming on to UPR, to UPR uh, Access Utah periodically, and um, appreciate you coming on today. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah. Again, uh, go to our website, pledge your support today. Very important. We're heading toward a goal uh, today of $7,000. That might seem, uh, you know, big, certainly probably outside of your reach, my reach, certainly, to, to write out a check for that. But if we pool our resources, just uh, put our money together, so to speak, we can do this as a community. And uh, you go to upr.org to make that happen, upr.org. And thank you. Hi, it's Francis Lamb. This week, we're all about Mexican food in America. We've got a taste test of tortillas, a story about the fascinating restaurant that inspired Taco Bell, and chef's advice on how to make freestyle tacos and classic Mexican desserts. All that and more on The Splendid Table, the show for curious cooks and eaters from APM. Sundays at noon on Utah Public Radio. Statewide service of Utah State University's College of Humanities and Social Sciences. This is KUSR Logan, KUSUFM Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, Moab, KUST Price, KCEU, and streaming online at upr.org. For 
the past two years here on Utah Public Radio, we've been bringing you a weekly dose of research and exploration. We call it undisciplined because we work really hard to take scientific studies, which are usually written in journals intended for people who share a background in a subject matter, and make them accessible for just about everyone. There are more than 100 episodes available wherever you get your podcasts, or you can catch us every Thursday morning at 1030 here on UPR.